Welcome to the Nears Podcast, made possible by Northeast Freight Transfer and Shale Rail. Together, they are rail strong. And our host, Cowan. Our next Nears conference is June 3rd through the 5th. To register and for all things Nears, please visit nears.org, N-E-A-R-S dot O-R-G. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for standing by, and welcome to the Northeast Association of Railroads update call on how the railroads are navigating the COVID-19 pandemic call, hosted by Cowan. As a reminder, this call is not open for the media. The contents of this call and the views expressed on it are solely for the use of Cowan and Company clients. Any publication, reproduction, or transmission of this information without the express permission of Cowan is expressly prohibited. As a reminder, we are not interested in receiving, and you should not disclose any confidential information. In the event that you inadvertently disclose such information, please notify us as soon as possible. At this time, I would now turn the call over to Jason Seidel, Cowan's Transportation and Logistics Analyst. Please go ahead, sir. Uh, thank you, Operator, and everyone welcome. I, I hope everybody out there uh, is safe and healthy um, uh, we have a fantastic panel uh, with us today. Uh, the purpose of this panel uh, is to provide those associated with the rail industry an update on the impacts from the virus from a political, economic, operational, uh, and, and social aspect. Um, uh, Nier has approached me to, to help um, uh, put on this call, uh, and so we did it sort of through together last minute um, uh, because their bandwidth provider could not uh, accommodate it. Uh, with us today, uh, a wonderful panel. Um, we have uh, Arthur Adams, uh, Vice President, Sales and Customer Engagement from CSX. We have Chuck Baker. He's the President of the American Shortline and Regional Association. Uh, and Chris Kruger, uh, who is Cowan's own Washington strategist. And so uh, given that Washington has such a prominent role in what's going on, I, I figured we'd start with Chris, uh, and, and then uh, we'll go to Arthur and then Chuck. So, uh, Chris, why don't you kick us off here? Yeah, well, thanks. Uh, uh, great to be with you all. Um, in terms of where we are, um, Washington, uh, really, I mean, in the last five weeks, when you combine the monetary with the fiscal response, uh, you know, I think we're pretty comfortable saying it's it's unprecedented in size, scope, and speed. Uh, the Congress is now working on their fourth uh, uh, pandemic uh, bill. Uh, it's probably going to total you know, north of a trillion dollars. So all in, the sticker price of these four bills is approaching four trillion dollars. Um, in terms of the railroads, um, you know, you sort of think of them as kind of the, the tracks of the economy. There's not a lot of really rail-specific stuff uh, in these uh, bills, which are known as phases one, two, three, and then either phase four, or you can discuss sort of phase 3.25 or phase 3.5. Um, but, I mean, essentially, I think what, what you can say is that that big Phase 3 bill, the, the CARES Act, I think that bill, those kind of five critical components of that bill are basically going to be on a repeat cycle until the unemployment claims plateau. So, you know, number one, direct cash to... Hello? Chris? Well, that was a good update while it lasted. Chris, yeah. I, 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 I think we lost Chris there for a little bit. Um, so, you know, since but we'll, we'll get Chris back on to um, uh, to give us that update. I don't know if he even realizes um, he is out, um, so I'll shoot him an email while we're all here. Uh, but to make sure we can keep this going, uh, you know, we'll turn it over to 
Arthur uh, over at uh, CSX to tell us sort of how CSX is coping with with uh, COVID, not only from their own people, but remember they deal uh, with a, a lot of customers across their entire network. And, and before I do that, I just want to express my gratitude to the men and women of, of, of the rail industry for help keeping this country rolling uh, as much as we can during these trying times. Uh, their their efforts are uh, will definitely not go unrecognized by yours truly. So, uh, gentlemen, uh, please relay my thanks uh, to the hardworking men and women there. So, Arthur, why don't you uh, take it over and uh, talk about what's going on at CSX? Yeah, Jason, thank you so much for that that warm introduction. And um, John and, and Chuck and, and Chris, who are also joining us on, on the panel, I, I sincerely appreciate the opportunity to host this podcast with you all. And uh, on behalf of our, our executive team and, and all the railroaders across uh, North America, um, I hope that uh, all of your families are, are doing well and they are safe. Um, as you think about the economic and, and social impacts uh, attributable to um, COVID-19, and we are doing everything that we can at CSX to, you know, support the, the broader economy um, as well as the uh, communities across you know, the roughly uh, 20,000 miles and, and 23 state rail system, you know, that we serve. You know, I'll talk about the operations, and then I'll, I'll touch more specifically on, on, our, on our employees. Um, from an operational perspective, we uh, are adhering to all of the guidelines that have been set forth by both the, the CDC uh, and World Health Organization you think about social distancing, as you think about um, ensuring that as our employees come to work and, and leave work, that if they uh, have any symptoms uh, that would indicate uh, that they may have been affected by COVID-19, that we are constantly reinforcing that within our employee base. As you think about um, sanitation and you think about disinfecting uh, the various surfaces that we touch um, as you think about our labor force and incorporating a lot of these best practices um, in the daily job briefings, um, social distancing, staggering, uh, you know, the, the various crews so that you don't have, you know, more than, you know, 10 individuals in, in a combined workspace at any given time. You know, we have been very, very aggressive um, in ensuring that our our, our customers, as well as our frontline employees, um, are working very safely. Uh, one of the things that we instituted early in March was a pandemic response team. Um, and this is a, a cross-functional group of our, our third-party contractors, our, our employees, our, our management staff, our, our medical staff, to ensure that we are taking a very holistic approach to how we think about managing um, the business. Uh, we provided uh, a, a coronavirus response checklist to our frontline supervisors um, that are working in our, our field operations to ensure um, that if they uh, suspect uh, that they have employees that may um, be affected, um, that they are making the right decisions day in and day out. Uh, and I think as a result of all of these preventive measures, it has uh, enabled us to mitigate 
the, the number of uh, COVID-19 uh, affected employees um, that we have here at CSX. On the communications front, I think it, in this environment, I, I don't think you can over-communicate to our employees and our customers. And so on the customer front, one of the things that we instituted several weeks ago is our chief sales and marketing officer, Mark Wallace, is communicating weekly with our customers and providing updates on what we're seeing in terms of market trends, but reinforcing the essential nature that, Jason, you alluded to in your conversation, uh, your opening comments around the role that we play as transportation providers. Um, I myself, having responsibility uh, for our merchandise carload business, spend a majority of, of my time directly interfacing with customers, number one, to understand what are the things that we can do to help support them as they work through business continuity plans, as they work through disruptions to their supply chains. And one of the things that I'm, I'm pleased to report uh, is that the, the one common thread uh, from our customers has been, number one, we appreciate the, the level of communication, and number two, the level of service that you are providing um, in these unprecedented times is second to none. And that's something that, that we are very, very proud of. In terms of what we're doing uh, from, a, from a, a social perspective, um, we launched through our, our Pride and in Service initiative a First Responders uh, Children's Foundation, um, and that was established to focus uh, exclusively on the first responder families that were directly impacted as a result of this crisis. And we have already raised over $4 million in contributions as a result uh, of that initiative, which is something that we are extremely proud of. Um, you know, I'm certain there will be an opportunity, uh, Jason, for, for questions. So you know, I'll, I'll pause there uh, uh, for now and just opening commentary uh, and then uh, turn it back over to you. Uh, well, I'll have a, a, a follow-up question or, or two for you, um, uh, but uh, Chris Kruger has been able to uh, uh, to get back on, um, so I guess we'll uh, we'll turn it back over to Chris here, and he can uh, keep going with his update from Washington. Great, thanks. So, you know, when you think about uh, Washington's response, it's going to it's going to continue with more disaster relief uh, that looks a lot like the Phase Three bill until those unemployment numbers uh, start to plateau. Uh, I think that the the consensus in Washington, though, once you move from disaster relief to stimulus, does fall apart. So uh, while an infrastructure bill is really a question of when, not if, it's in our estimation, at least now, probably not until next year. You do have the highway bill expiring at the end of September, so you have a natural vehicle uh, for that. But once we get, you know, our, our next disaster relief bill, whether it's next week or, you know, early May, um, you are, I suspect, the, the political calendar will start coming more into focus. Uh, infrastructure, you know, everybody has their own definition of it. Uh, de for Democrats, it's more kind of Green New Deal type stuff. For Republicans, more, um, you know, more kind of, you know, standard roads, uh, et cetera. 
if there is a big infrastructure push, uh, I suspect the, the railroads will be uh, will be pretty active lobbying to make sure that some of the uh, policy riders that they disagree with are not included, such as mandating crew size or anything on the uh, heavier truck uh, issue. Uh, the big priority, my, it sounds like from a, a lobby standpoint for the railroads, is to make sure that the Section 130 grade crossing program gets the, the money it deserves. That seems to be a, a top priority. Um, so with that, Jason, that's that's sort of where we are on a, uh, you know, a legislative front. Uh, let me turn it back to you. Great. And um, I'll turn it over to Chuck, and then I'll ask uh, all of you guys some specific questions. So, Chuck, why don't you give us uh, um, the American Short Line and Regional Association update? Sure. Um, happy to, and I appreciate the invite to be to be on this. Actually, my first ever podcast, which is kind of fun. Um, the um, first, I wanted to just say I hope everybody's doing okay on a personal level. It's strange times. Um, I think I, I don't have a list in front of you of exactly who's on this or will be listening or is listening, but I know that you're all out there doing important things. Um, if you're like me, you're also trying to do them with two um, kids who are ostensibly trying to be homeschooled downstairs, which is um, I, I fear that I'm succeeding at neither right now, but we're all, we're all doing our best. Um, and it's uh, it's strange times. I hope people are, are doing okay and taking a minute to breathe and get some fresh air occasionally. Uh, and then I also um, really wanted to echo the the comment um, earlier about having gratitude for the frontline railroad workers who are out there moving trains um, every day. I think it's um, I think it's heroic stuff. You know, these people also have kids at home and they're also scared of getting the virus and they go out every day and they. They move trains. Um, you know, I mean, the the nature of moving freight rail trains actually lends itself relatively well to pretty good social distancing. And I, I think we are comfortable as an industry and as individual companies that we can do it safely. But nevertheless, it still um, must be distressing to be up, have to kind of go out there and do it every day when there's so many messages about how most people should be staying at home. So I think I hope those people are um, appreciate it. I know I appreciate them, and we appreciate them, and I hope um, I hope they feel they feel appreciated as they go out and and do this every day. Um, short line network overall, I would say on an operation sense, is is running quite well. Um, I'm on a call every day uh, with the FRA and a couple of big uh, all the big class ones and some of the short line folks. Um, the service levels and the operations is running is running pretty clean. The railroads are running nicely right now um uh you know there's a handful of short lines that have um, a couple of employees with coronavirus cases but no kind of mass breakouts um no workforce shortages no attendance problems so the, the trains are running okay um the trains are running well uh the business levels i would say from what we're hearing are choppy um they're obviously down overall which would be the least surprising news of all time, given, you know, we're in the great pause of the economy. Um, you know, and so the, the short line levels overall, you know, mimic the class one levels, right? That overall it's down some, but hanging in there. Okay. That the challenge for short lines is that these are, it's a collection of 600 small companies. So, um, so the effects are choppier, right? Like, so if you're a railroad that's mostly hauling grain or mostly hauling 
paper products or pulp for cardboard, whatever, you're probably pretty steady right now, if not actually up a little bit. But if you're a railroad that's hauling auto parts or hauling ethanol or hauling crude oil or hauling construction materials or hauling retail products, you're, you may have seen traffic just fall off a cliff in the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, the auto parts numbers, I think, are down like 85% from year-over-year levels. So it, it can be choppy. I do think, um, I think overall as a network, we're going to be okay as an, as an, as an industry, we're going to be okay. I do think for individual short lines, there could be some that face pretty severe crises if these, you know, if this sort of great pause remains in effect for too much longer. Um, so we'll, we'll see how, we'll see how that continues to look. Um, at the ASLRA, kind of at the association level, um, what we're doing, uh, we've spent a lot of time working with FRA, and we did this in concert with the AAR um, on a pretty big safety, emergency safety waiver to give us, um, it's really kind of broken down into two buckets. One is to change a lot of um, safety regulations to make social distancing easier, um, like think about spreading um, spreading a crew out over two different locomotives on a distributed power um, across a bigger train um, or letting people not all have to be in the same room to file paperwork at the end of a shift, that kind of thing. And then the other bucket is to allow people to run, uh, keep the trains running if we do end up with a workforce shortage. Um, we have not blessedly had to use those waivers much, but it, they're, they're out there and the FRA was extraordinarily helpful. And um, just like uh, Chris said, the Washington response on kind of size and scope of legislation has been unprecedented. I would say the speed at which the FRA was able to process some of these regulatory issues, um, what is sort of unprecedented in my experience. Uh, so we spent a fair amount of time on that. We spent a fair amount of time with DHS and CISA on the uh, critical infrastructure worker guidance. Uh, obviously, rail freight railroad workers have been deemed essential infrastructure. Um, also, importantly, all the, the main supply chain to us, all the rail car repair and the locomotive manufacturing and the, you know, the rail contractors and the track grinding and the ballast and the wood ties and all that stuff that's all deemed essential too. So we're able to keep, keep everything functioning and we spend a fair amount of time making sure that workers don't have any trouble getting into areas that are on quarantine or lockdown or stay at home or however you want to call those orders. And we've been pleased with how that's all worked. We've also, as an association, tried to put out an awful lot of information. Um, we've done it by webinars, by email blasts. We have a dedicated uh, coronavirus web page on our website. Um, if you just go to the main ASLRRA.org homepage, it's right there kind of on a banner. We've got a ton of coronavirus specific information um, up there. Um, so that's been really good. Um, for anyone out there who's interested in the Shortline Annual Conference, you, we, we, um, we had to postpone it. It was originally scheduled for early May in Dallas. At this point, it's most likely to end up in early October in Kansas City. We're still working on that. We'll announce it when we have it. But, you know, that's a small thing, but that's uh, for us, that's a big deal to have to re rejigger that. Um, and then the, the legislation front, I'd say Chris um, covered it well. Um, probably things I would add um, is in CV2, um, the second bill, 
there were a couple rail specific things in there that we cared about. Um, as people know, the railroads pay, uh, pay workers, um, through the railroad retirement system or pay, um, you know, retirement and taxes and that sort of thing through railroad retirement rather than through the regular social security FICA type system. So with the concept of the, um, payroll tax credits that for to reimburse employers who pay extra sick leave and extra FMLA leave, we had to make sure that railroads were eligible for that, like the rest of the country was. And so we were able to kind of fix that at the last minute. And then we were also able to make sure that the railroad unemployment, uh, insurance, um, on the, in the, uh, if we are forced to do any kind of furloughs and layoffs, we wanted to make sure that the railroad unemployment system got the same plus up that all the state unemployment programs got. And we were able to do that, do that too. And we were able to work on that with our friends at rail labor, um, in CV three, you know, the biggest issue, um, the biggest thing in there that helps short lines is the big payroll protection um, pay, paycheck that three, the PPP kind of forgivable loan program and a forgivable loan. It's obviously just like a grant. And so for, for almost all short lines with the exception of the couple um, biggest ones like GNW and WACO, almost all of them qualify for the small business size standard. And so they're able to access these um, forgivable loans, which do provide two months worth of, payroll, rent, mortgage, and utilities um, reimbursement, um, which is pretty nice. Uh, I'm not able to get it at the association level because we're a 501c6, but, um, but uh, so that was a bummer for me, me personally, uh, but the, um, the most of those shoreline railroads are able to get it, which is excellent. Um, and I would agree that with Chris's take that CV4, when it comes, will likely just plus up some of the CV3 uh, programs and certainly including this one so the program doesn't run out of money. Uh, I do think that, you know, eventually the Congress will pivot to some sort of restart the economy stimulus type response um, and that there will be some infrastructure opportunity in that, um, whether that's this year or next year is, you know, I'm not really willing to predict at the moment, but, um, but, you know, there are some, I, I would agree with um, the characterization of what some of the bigger railroads would focus on in that, which would be Section 130 grade crossing, grade crossing program, and then also, um, you know, no bad policy riders like a crew size mandate. Um, from a short line perspective, I'd add a couple other things. We will ask for the 45G tax credit to be made permanent in that um, on the with the argument that um, providing visibility out into the future would help increase investment now because given that these are such long-lived assets with a you know multi-year kind of lead and planning time to make big infrastructure investments uh, and then we'd also suggest some plus ups to some of the grant programs we're interested in like the Chrissy grant program and the infra grant program so that's what I've got going on in my world it's been in strange times and happy to hang around for Q and A. Well, thank you so much, Chuck. And, uh, uh, everyone, I've been asked to give a little bit of a truck update, uh, from NEARS as a lot of the, the, the NEARS constituents, um, uh, utilize the trucking industry as well. Um, so, you know, really what we've been seeing out there is, is, uh, bits of fire drill, um, enactments because you've had, uh, a lot of customers just have this massive increase in demand. A lot of the grocery stores, the consumer package companies, and it's been all hands on deck. They've been, you know, because every American is, you know, consuming, you know, 400 rolls of toilet paper apparently. 
Um, everyone needs more trucks in that area. But at the same time, um, they're having customers shut down um, who are sort of non-essential uh, business operations. So uh, they're losing business. On the other hand, you get a lot of people now, I think, going after the same types of customers. So the, the spike that you saw on um, the spot rate side is probably going to start to abate here as the impacts of a lot of those closings uh, take place. And then Americans have sort of ramped up a lot of their consumption and, and uh, quasi-hoarding, if you will, of the goods that they, uh, uh, they've decided to do. Uh, the other thing we've been starting to hear, um, it's a lot of call-outs, if you will. So the truckers that uh, don't show up to work for one reason or another, whether they're sick or afraid of getting sick, uh, that's creating some capacity shortages out there. Um, I think the main thing for, for shippers to realize, uh, you know, the truckers obviously are out there doing their jobs uh, day in and day out like the railroad workers, so uh, they deserve a ton of credit. But, you know, when we come out of this, uh, whether it be June, July, August, September, um, and uh, there's going to be an increase in demand, we are most likely going to be coming out of this with less truck capacity than we entered it in. Uh, there's been a natural attrition uh, every year uh, in the truck driving community, and a lot of that this year hasn't been backfilled uh, because a lot of the schools are shutting down and not really producing guys. We're not uh, buying uh, Class A trucks, uh, and uh, trucking companies are going bankrupt into this, uh, a lot of them uh, under the weight of massive increase in insurance costs. So I think that's going to be one of the things that wouldn't be surprised to see a spike uh, on the spot rate side as we come out of this, just because it's a supply and demand marketplace, always has been, it's always been pretty clear. Uh, so that's something I think that uh, uh, the shipping community needs to to, um, to be aware of. Um, so I have a couple prepared questions for these gentlemen, um, uh, and I'm going to start, Chris, I'm going to start with you because I know you're on the clock in terms of how long you could be with us. Um, you mentioned an infrastructure bill. Can you give us a sense of size in this bill and sort of what will be the main sticking points in getting sort of Republicans and Democrats to agree upon it? Because it's been brought up many times in the past. Both sides seem to want to spend a lot more money. It's just getting to agree upon it. So maybe if you can just give us some info there. Sure. Uh, I think you're, you know, you, you've seen the bid ask spread. Pelosi's around $750 billion over five years. Uh, Trump, in Trumpian fashion, is $2 trillion. Uh, we don't know the time frame. Pelosi has hinted that his time frame might be 10 years. Um, I think a big question will be is this an infrastructure bill or is this uh, as well as the highway bill? So the highway bill expires at the end of uh, September, the end of this fiscal year. You know, with the highway bill, you always have the question of the gas tax. Are you going to increase that, index it to inflation? Are you going to do all of the other uh, highway trust fund taxes, truckers, et cetera? Um, I mean, I think a, a, a decent number ballpark is probably a trillion dollars, maybe over five years. Uh, will there be bonding provisions in there? Um, uh, and probably most importantly, who's president and who controls the Senate? If it's President Trump with a Republican Senate, I think it'll be, you know, more sort of uh, maybe more of a focus uh, rural, probably less on the mass transit, certainly less on the clean energy sort of Green New Deal aspects. If it's, uh, you know, President Biden with Leader Schumer and Speaker Pelosi, uh, it's going to be more sort of quote-unquote green. Um, 
you know, those are, I think, some of the some of the things to keep an eye out for. Um, and, you know, whether or not it's offset or not, if it is the highway bill, you do have, you know, the revenue stream from the uh, the highway trust fund taxes, about 80 percent of those being uh, the gas taxes. Uh, so I think, you know, a trillion dollars uh, is sort of what what we're looking for. I do think it's probably, you know, spring of 2021. Uh, although perhaps, you know, my inner cynic will be proven wrong and the Democrats and Republicans will will come together on a big infrastructure bill uh, this fall, although, you know, we, we do have an election uh, in November. Oh, that, 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 that's a great update, Chris. Thank you very much. Um, you know, I'm going to um, flip a question since we're talking policy here a little bit uh, back to Chuck. Chuck, you mentioned uh, the shortline and regional tax credit uh the shoreline industry has been looking to try to make that permanent for years now. And historically, it has been one of the very few issues that has had tremendous bipartisan support. Um, it's just the industry's failed to make it permanent or even make it like a five-year uh, type thing. So w w what's your level of confidence that you could actually make it permanent this time and then, you know, sort of this, this environment is going to be more conducive to pushing it through? Yeah, it's it's a good question. We um we think we have at least a reasonable shot at making it permanent or a longer term, you know, way out into the future in a um in either an infrastructure stimulus or a surface transportation reauthorization process, whether that's fall of this year or spring of next year. Um you know, it is, there's a huge amount of bipartisan support, right? 300 House co-sponsors, 62 Senate co-sponsors. Um, it, it would make sense as either infrastructure stimulus or surface transportation policy. Um, but, you know, who knows? We've been, we've been talking about that for 15 years and we've never gotten anything more than kind of a couple of year extensions at a time, which we're not really complaining about because it's been a great, a great successful program. And, um, you know, it, it's never, it's never not been there, although sometimes it's had to be put in place retroactively. But, you know, if you look at the whole scope of it, we have had it straight for 15 years. So we don't have too much to complain about, although the permanency would be a nice a nice benefit for visibility. So I, I don't, you know, to answer your direct question, I don't have a great specific way to answer it other than, like, we've got a good chance and we're certainly going to try um, try really hard. Oh, that, that, that's fair enough, Chuck. And, and maybe for some of the listeners in the line who might not be as familiar as, as I am or you are with the tax credit, can you uh, please explain to them how it actually works? Sure. Yeah, it's a relatively um, simple tax credit uh, for short line railroads, so any class two or three railroad. Uh, you basically get a $3,500 tax credit per track mile you own or operate. Uh, it's at a $3,500 cap, so it's a 50% tax credit, which means you have to spend at least $7,000 uh, a track mile to get it. Um, and it uh, it runs right through your kind of your corporate or your personal income tax if it's a pass-through corporation. Um, we think it's an amazingly successful program in the sense that it's not a uh, it's not a federal grant program, so it doesn't require elaborate agreement. It doesn't require what the FRA, you know, thinks is the best place for you to spend money. Uh, it just, it flows through the 600 small railroads and they can make the investment right away and then claim the benefit on their, 
their tax um, their tax return the following the following year. So it works pretty simply and and efficiently, and we think it's it's you know it's long been our number one kind of legislative priority. It benefits obviously every single short line in every corner of the country, and there are you know there, we're in 49 states, a lot of rural areas and small towns, so that would probably explain the the popularity of it too. And even, uh, you know, uh, even a lot of rail shippers have been very, um, very supportive of it. Um, uh, we've got a group called Saving Our Service, which has hundreds of uh, uh, rail shippers, um, many of whom I'm sure are part of NEARS and, um, and NARS who are, um, who are supportive of it. So it's been a great, you know, and there's nobody opposed to it. Yeah, our class one railroad friends have also been supportive of it, even though they don't benefit directly from it. Oh, they're an indirect benefit from uh, improved shoreline service and track, correct? Indirect, correct, yes. Right. Uh, and it still doesn't include um, cars and locomotives and buildings, correct? No, it's uh, it's like the physical, like on the ground kind of infrastructure. Right. Right. Just wanted to make that clear for the people who might be on the line. Uh, Arthur, I, I just wanted to flip a question back over to you. You know, I mentioned, obviously, a lot of the employee call-outs uh, on the trucking side that we're starting to see. Uh, how is CSX coping um, sort of with uh, people calling out of work that, that might be happening? Are you seeing a spike in that? Uh, what's your ability to manage it? And also, uh, on the flip side, you know, are you seeing a lot of that happen at your customer sides uh, that are that are giving you problems in terms of, uh, keeping the operations flowing as fluidly as possible. Yes. Yeah, so from a from a customer perspective, uh, we have yet to see any significant uh, increase in uh, what I'd say workforce disruption uh, attributable to um, COVID-19 at, at facilities. Now, clearly, uh, if there is an outbreak at a particular facility, um, you could expect some near-term disruption. Um, but in most cases, those those facilities are going through the appropriate protocol, and then you know rebounding very quickly. And we are managing those on, on a day-to-day basis. So we are tracking separately um, any inquiries that come in either through field operations or through our customer solutions team, um, and then working closely with our operating team to adjust um, service plans accordingly. In terms of our our uh, employee base, specifically our T and E. Employees, um, surprisingly, and I would say that uh, unlike the the trucking industry, we have yet to see um, any you know material increases in um, call offs attributable to um, COVID-19. Now, I think the one thing that that our operating team has done an extraordinary job of is, is ensuring you know working very closely uh, with with the unions that we are you know proactively. Um, really uh, um, uh, using this as an opportunity to uh, ensure that we are uh, uh, demonstrating kind of a, a heightened level of commitment around, you know, adherence to all of the various protocols related to mitigating COVID-19. You know, and a good example of that is, you know, as you think about our, our locomotive engineers or our dispatchers, and so, you know, when they come on duty, you know, we're providing them with, with kits that they can use um, to, to clean the, 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 the locomotives, you know, uh, disposable gloves, disposable mask, um, additional uh, sanitation wipes. But we're also doing, you know, multiple daily 
uh, routine deep cleaning on you know all of our uh, rolling stock, if you will, that our T&E uh, employees would be exposed to. So um, thankfully, up until this point, you know I think our frontline employees have responded very well, uh, and we have yet to see any um, meaningful disruption. Well, Arthur, I was knocking on wood. I muted myself there to, when you were saying that uh, <laughs> there wasn't a lot of disruption there because uh, clearly that's something nobody wants. Um, you know, sticking sort of with the outlook, what do you think will permanently change in the way CSX has operations going forward given the pandemic? Uh, you know, people have talked about societal change, about people working from home more and, and people maybe being, you know, more cognizant of um, you know, uh, you know, more cleanly ways of of the work environment, if you will. I'm sure everyone, uh, once this pandemic is done, and New York City is going to look uh, look twice at holding a subway railing uh, for sure. But is there anything that you think might be permanently changing in the way that we do business when the railroad does business? You know, I, I think it's I think it's too early to know, right? I mean, if you think about uh, the COVID-19 and and, and the crisis, I'd say, you know, uh, late February, early March is when I think the, the country in mass uh, really began to um, feel the disruption, if you will, attributable to, to COVID-19. So if you think about it, we're still kind of in the early innings, right? Um, I, I will say that, you know, I, I think safety is always top of mind for us as an organization, and, and I think as we think about, you know, safety protocol, are there some opportunities there um, to incorporate, you know, sanitation uh, more, more frequently in terms of how we, you know, think about managing, you know, the assets on a, on a go-forward basis? That may be an opportunity. You know, if you think about the fact that roughly 90-plus percent of, of our management workforce is now working remotely, you know, are there are there certain are there certain Units uh, within our management ranks, where you, you you may decide that, hey, is there a teleworking um, option that we hadn't explored previously? And so, you know, I, I think there there's probably a lot of different paths that that we are looking at and reviewing across the broader enterprise that may influence how we, you know, how, how we manage the business on a go forward basis. I tell you, the one thing that that will not change is, you know, our commitment to to how we serve. The customers, and and that's something that you know we are very very proud of. Um, I think one thing that we are also contemplating on a go forward basis. I, I alluded to the frequency of communication um, as a result of, of COVID-19. So weekly communications that, that um, uh, have been spearheaded by our chief sales and marketing officer. I can tell you resoundingly, you know, uh, the feedback from customers has been very very positive you know, about the frequency of communication. And so, yeah, I think that's something that, that we will consider on a go-forward basis. Now, will it be weekly? Probably not. But is there an opportunity um, to to ramp up the frequency of communication, not only with our customers, but, but our short-line partners alike? No, I, I think everyone would agree that's probably a, a good thing going forward. So uh, here's, here's the hoping that that sticks around in some way, shape, or fashion. And, you know, this is going to be a question for both Chuck and Arthur. You know, obviously, you know, Chris uh, touched on it a lot. Arthur, you mentioned, uh, excuse me, Chuck mentioned some of it. Um, the government's been doing a lot, lots of money thrown back into the system, trying to keep the economy uh, afloat here as best as possible. 
Um, what do you want the government to do that they haven't already done as an industry? So what what more could the government do for the rail industry right now to help them through it uh, to get sort of to the other side uh, post-pandemic, if you will? Yeah, I mean, from the short line point of view, um, you know, we're not in we're not in kind of bailout crisis mode on our financials, so we're not asking in that sense. You know, we we are trying to frame our infrastructure suggestions along the lines of like when Congress is ready to move away from immediate first aid to. Uh, to, you know, to, to the rehabilitation of the economy, that we have some good ideas that we think belong in an infrastructure discussion. Um, but, you know, the biggest, the, the reality is at the end of the day, railroads are demand-derived business, obviously. Like, we move what our customers need us to move. So I, I don't think that there is much of a magic pill out there that's railroad-specific that's beyond doing everything we can to kind of get the economy going back again. And unfortunately getting the economy going back again is a little bit dependent on getting the public health crisis solved first. Um, so to the, you know, um, I think we're finding ourselves rooting and hoping um, along with everyone else that the country does sort of properly flatten the curve and hopefully we make some progress on treatments and therapies and get the ventilators we need and get the hospitals staffed up properly and eventually get a vaccine made or, you know, figure out a way to, to deal with these things. But, um, you know, we don't have anything on our list like today that like, oh, if the government could change this tomorrow, we'd be in better shape. I mean, we've gotten what we've needed on the FRA regulatory waivers and we've um, gotten what we needed from DHS on the the critical infrastructure designations and the ability to keep to keep running. So, you know, right now we're um, we're able to move what our customers need us to move, and um, you know, hoping that those numbers don't continue to go the wrong direction. Yeah, I'll just add to that, and, and Chuck, you know, I thought I thought your comments around the um, the FRA and you know the various governing bodies that we work with day in and day out, AAR. Uh, Surface Transportation Board, uh, I, I will tell you that they have been, you know, uh, very supportive uh, and and flexible and agile uh, in these times of, of uncertainty. As a matter of fact, uh, the Surface Transportation Board, I serve on one of the subcommittees, the RSTAC committee, and uh, we have, as of two weeks ago, launched uh, weekly um, half-hour catch-up sessions uh, with the Surface Transportation Board led by Chairman Begeman. I think those, those meetings have been uh, received very well. We have great participation uh, from all committee members. And you know, I think in terms of you know, what the government can do, number one, I will say at, at the federal, state, and local level, I think the, the government's done a great job of coordinating uh, with our, our state, local, and, and federal affairs teams, um, ensuring that uh, we are deemed as, as essential, uh, and then all of our upstream and downstream vendors um, have uh, the necessary designations that they need to continue to conduct um, business as usual. You know, if you think about the composition and mix uh, of our business, 
I think we're all familiar with with the large institutional railroad shippers you know, across all of the commodities that we move, but there are also a, a, a significant amount of, of small to medium-sized shippers that the rail industry does business with today. And so, you know, if anything, I think the federal government's ability um, to continue to support those small to medium-sized businesses um, so that they can remain afloat uh, until the economy rebounds is is essential. Uh, Chuck said it well. If you think about uh, the industry that we're in, we're we're a service provider, right? And the service that we provide is is in direct correlation to the demand side of the curve. So I think anything that we can do to stimulate a healthy economy is something that we are are, are proponents. Fantastic. Um, I want to ask Chris Kruger the, our final question because I know he has a hard stop here, and Chris, appreciate your time. Um, just for more of the general uh, economic support, uh, not rail-specific here, but general economic support, what are the, uh, uh, the, the the markers we should be looking for for more government intervention? So what is, what's the timing going to be like? Well, I mean, I think unfortunately, uh, every Thursday morning uh, at 8:30, uh, we'll get a, a fresh view. That's been the metric thus far for policymakers in Washington is those uh, those weekly unemployment uh, claims. Uh, in terms of the next piece of legislation, I mean, the, so the Congress is gone until April 20th. Although there was an effort uh, this afternoon, Thursday, to pass. Uh, via unanimous consent, an additional $250 billion for the small business loan plan. Um, but I, I suspect we will have, you know, an all-in number, uh, probably north of a trillion dollars by, uh, you know, early May, focused on another round of uh, small business top-up, another medical surge, more money to the states, and perhaps even another round of, of stimulus checks uh, to individuals. Uh, so I mean, those those sort of four core, those are the kind of the four, the four corners of of phase three, which you know has a lot of muscle memory, has uh, bipartisan near unanimous consensus. So as long as those Thursday numbers, um, until they plateau, I think you you could see certainly one, maybe even a, a second bill, topping up the phase three uh, corners. Yeah, that, that, that's a that's a great update, and um, we're going to have to end it there, everybody. Again, uh, I'm so thankful here uh, as, on behalf of the New Year's organization uh, to have such a great panel. Arthur, Chris, Chuck, thank you, gentlemen, very much for your insightful commentary, and uh, please, everybody, uh, stay safe and healthy out there. <laughs>